3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. The old world is dying and the new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of the monsters. Welcome to a very special broadcast here on Wednesday Breakfast. We are considering our path to totalitarianism. Now, Judith, um, what is totalitarianism? Well, it's a, it's a big concept and lots of people have written about it, but generally it's agreed as a form of government that seeks to subordinate all aspects of individual life to the authority of the state. So it's generally associated with Benito Mussolini, the Italian dictator who used the term totalitario in the early 1920s. Not to say that, you know, the idea was, was not around before then, but uh, it's generally associated with him in particular. And uh, he's known to say, all within the state, none outside the state, none against the state. Uh, That's interesting that um, you bring up Mussolini there. Um, Yes, I mean, it's a fairly recent, uh, you know, um, I mean, the the name totalitarianism is fairly recent. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've got some great people who are going to join us today and to talk about it. So later in the show, we'll hear from Lizzie O'Shea. <clears throat> She'll be joining us from Perth, and uh, she's a lawyer, a writer, broadcaster, and uh, specialised in human rights and Aboriginal rights in Australia. So that's later in the show. She'll be coming in, and probably she had to get up earlier than anyone <laughs> in Perth. But in the studio right now, we have uh, Timothy Strong. So Timothy, Tim, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Tim's uh, teaches at RMIT and his research interests include critical technology studies, cultural geography, environmental philosophy and social justice. And his PhD thesis is entitled Mapping Google, Google Maps, Critiquing an Ideological Vision of the World. So welcome very much to 3CR Breakfast, Tim. Thanks for the invitation. Nice to be here. Yeah. And also with us in the studio is a person who's been shaking up the totalitariat for a long time. It's Jacob Gretsch, a renegade activist and presenter of a Friday rave, 5 p.m. Fridays on 3CR. His interests are wide-ranging, and lately he's been (coughs) keeping an eye on Australia's military spending, its investments in the arms industry, and the strange ben- bedfellows that creates in Saudi Arabia, who would have thought? Mm. So, <laughs> so welcome, Jacob. Yeah, thanks for having me, mate. And so now I think, Leila, you've got a proposition to put to our panelists. Absolutely. Um, I don't think any discussion of totalitarianism is complete without um, bringing up uh, the prophet of Aldous Huxley and his prophecy of Brave New World. Um, so in 1958, he revisited his kind of seminal piece uh, and he he analysed the current uh, political environment to what he um, predicted uh, 20 years beforehand. And um, this quote really resonated with me and I just wanted to get your opinions on this, Jacob and Tim. So, 
Under the uh, relentless thrust of accelerating overpopulation and increasing overorganization, and by means of ever more effective methods of mind manipulation, the democracies of the future will change their nature. The quaint old forms, elections, parliaments, supreme courts and all the rest will remain, but the underlying substance will be a new kind of totalitarianism. All the traditional names, all the hollowed-out slogans will remain exactly what they were in the good old days. Democracy and freedom will be the theme of every broadcast and editorial. Meanwhile, the ruling oligarchy and its highly trained elite of soldiers, policemen and thought manipulators will quietly run the show as they see fit. Tim, what is this new type of totalitarianism? Well, when Huxley was writing, it was 1958, which was the peak of the so-called golden age of capitalism, and he was reflecting on Fordism, which was uh, a word that he was one of the very early people to use in uh, Brave New World, which was the religion of the society that had been created, with the, the model T being the symbol uh, for, for the religion. And so he was desc- he described that at the very inception of Fordism as a as a complete system at around the same time that characters like Antonio Gramsci were talking about it. And then uh, about a generation later, in 1958, when he was describing it in Brave New World Revisited, a lot of the things that he described about Fordism had come to pass, actually. Hence that quote, and hence a lot of the other reflections in, in his book. Uh, since then, Fordism, as, as Huxley understood it, had kind of disintegrated sometime after the 19, big 1968 protests around the world, and then following the oil shocks and the other sort of crises that went across the long 1970s. And so a lot of that world that he was describing fell apart in various ways, but it was also rebuilt on a, on a higher and more abstract and complicated level. And I think that quote is a fantastic one, and it can ap- apply pretty much verbatim today. Absolutely. So what is Fordism, just just for listeners that may not uh, fully uh, be able to understand that term? Fordism comes from Henry Ford, uh, who was one of the great early 20th century capitalists, and he uh, built a model of capitalism which included the assembly line. It existed in uh, proto-states before him. In fact, he modelled it uh, from some Chicago slaughterhouses, which were which were basically disassembly lines, where carcasses would be passed along and torn to pieces in a very methodical way. <coughs> and then taking the kernel of that and applying it to cars and the opposite way around, he managed to... Uh, produce a system which de-skilled workers in various ways because they just had to do the same mechanical repeat, repetitive thing again, thus making them more replaceable. But at the same time, he offered them much higher wages with the lure of consumerism helping them come in because if he figured if they gave them higher wages, they would have more money to spend and they'd be more likely to buy his own products. It was also, in Ford's case, built in with a whole uh, worldview that was very uh, engineered in that he imagined it having a strong sort of moral component as well uh, and tried to guide his workers to have particular kinds of moral moral lives and, and whatnot. And it even had a strange colonial movement with a bizarre uh, project in Brazil uh, where they set up a kind of uh, dream, dream city uh, that was basically a Henry Ford colony, uh, which is a... It was an odd mishmash of things that sort of captured some of the... Some of the uh, some of the milieu in the air in the first part of the 20th century. And then that spread became ex- extraordinarily productive in a very narrow sense and spread from, from the car industry, which was the sort of commanding heights of the global industries back then, 
which sort of internalized a lot of uh, a lot of disparate elements of the economy, such as engineers were employed, there were designers, advertisers, a lot of those were put into big vertically integrated corporations, which since then have sort of disintegrated in various ways and be remade in differently. But yeah, the kernel of it came from Ford as in the car company. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in that he was very close to Mussolini's idea of totalitarian. He, um, from the start to <coughs> excuse me, from the start to finish, he had he exercised such control over his business that as Tim said, there was this moral code that was extremely, I guess you'd call it Presbyterian, without being ostensibly Christian, uh, where um, workers were sacked for um, getting pissed on the weekend, for, for example, and then particularly when he opened um, whatever it was called, Ford City, Ford, Fordville, down, down in Brazil. But, but the other interesting thing with Ford and his, and his morality on the global scale is um, when you look at his... Um, reactions to the wars. The First World War he was dead against and actually went on the peace boat to Sweden to saying that reasonable people needed to stop the war because peace was good for commerce. But then when the Second World War came around, of course, um, which was a lot more dependent on vehicular technology, be it boats, tanks and planes, um, he was, you know, I tend to think that it was what A.D. Hope wrote in... um, the song of the mod- modern man, you know, when the world was for peace, he was for peace, when the world was at war, he went. And so the totalitarian sort of side of it was was not only just in his factories, um, but also a whole world view about what's good for commerce. And, that's, and, and that is what, um, what he had in common with Mussolini, because fascism is ultimately um, when the society is run by the by the manufacturers, by the capitalists. So you think this is... um, So let's try and bring these together. So you think that this new type of totalitarianism is more abstracted, kind of more removed from the everyday, but also kind of perpetuating an ideology that war is good for commerce that's feeding into this Fordist ideology that we're still living within of high consumerism, kind of low-skilled work. Hmm. So that so that's kind of a picture of where we're at in terms of like this new type of totalitarianism. I don't think there is a new type of totalitarianism. <laughs> I think the more things change, the more things stay the same. Yeah. Really, it which is which same. is why Aldous Huxley resonates so well in 2018, sort well, of 60 odd years later. Well, is it not new in the sense that they're kind of able to create greater webs of control through our internet behaviours? Um. It's new in their technologies of control. It's absolutely new in their technologies of control. Um, but I think the underlying principle, um, as you opened it with Huxley and talking about Mussolini, and you can go back beyond Mussolini, um, before Mussolini, obviously. Um, but I think um, at, the, at the crux of it is the... There were two tendencies, the tendencies of some people to want to control and exert their will over the majority of the population. And the second tendency, in my mind, is even scarier, and that is the tendency of the majority of the population to subsume their will to someone from the first category. Yeah, that is a rather <laughs> scary thing. <tendency. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> right, look, look, historically, we, we look at um, George Orwell. Someone, um, I was talking to someone just recently and they referred to something as Orwellian. 
And I thought, you know, George Orwell um, envisaged the state putting recording devices and cameras um, and microphones in everybody's bedroom and everybody's lounge room. But even in his most dystopian despair, he could not have envisaged a world where people line up on the streets overnight to buy these mm-hmm. latest technologies <laughs> to put in themselves. Mm-hmm. Yes, we subjugate ourselves. Yeah. So, uh, Tim, your area has been very much on the, the, those technologies. Can you tell us perhaps a bit more, looking, you know, say globally, about you know what's happening in that realm? In the realm of high technology surveillance. Yes. Oh, um. Rather, rather a lot, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where do I start? How long have you been? It's been a booming industry. You got that tape running? You got that tape running? <laughs> uh, it's very fair to say it's been a boom industry for pretty much the last century. Uh, and across that, you can see it be working on higher and higher and more complex levels. But um, all of it, I think, has a bit of uh, some similarities, which you can get at if you look at the actual word surveillance itself. Surveillance uh, is derived from the Latin, with sur being above and valence being watch. So it means like literally watch over. It's related to the earlier term surveil, uh, to like to survey, like you know, when surveyors go out and measure land, which was basically the exact same etymology. Survey came from at the beginning of capitalist modernity, right back in the 16th century, where at that point surveyors would go out and measure different parts of empire and like into nice neat little triangles and coordinate off on maps and in order to impose control over areas. Surveillance, the word, came much more recently during the Napoleonic times and then it was meant specifically as a tool of statecraft. But by invoking this long history, I think it's important because surveillance being the view from above, the word itself implies a kind of spatial distancing, which is vertical, Ah, like being watching over. So it's fundamentally about social power. And all of surveillance, its long history, has this same pattern where the the surveyor, whoever wants to survey what's going on, they position themselves outside and above whatever it is that they seek to control. And that relationship is more than spatial. Uh, Well, it's fundamentally about social power, but it also produces a particular kind of knowledge. And that knowledge is, by its nature, abstracted because it's the surveyor is not interested in the greater qualities of whatever it is they're looking at. They're not interested, like, say, when Henry Ford was patrolling his um, production lines, he wasn't interested in the workers' like complicated inner life or their struggles or a lot of things like that, even though he was in a certain way. But he was, he was in that he wanted to shape it in a particular way, but he was narrowly interested because he had a specific uh, agenda to push and it was a specific organisation of power that he wanted to imbue into them. And that's the same with all surveillance. They look at a very small slice of the world. Even today with all of the incredible surveillance technologies, they all just take very narrow little cuts into into the world which are are focused by the interests of power, and they grant an organisational power to the surveyor. Whoever does that can scrape in all of these little pieces of reality and organise them in such a way that they get an organisational power, but they can never actually get to know reality as a whole because reality is, of course, infinitely complex. Nature is outrageously uh, much more complicated than any little surveillance mechanism can have, and people are <coughs> fundamentally multidimensional beings that can never be caught by any kind of little data set. So, so that's, kind of po- that, sorry, that's kind of positive because it suggests that they can't have... No one can have total control, but they, people could still use that control to have a big effect on people's lives. 
Yeah, and it's interesting, Tim, when you say that survey comes from above because, of course, today when people think about um, the technologies of state control and surveillance, we're talking about satellite systems and eyes in the sky, which are, I guess, ultimately over our heads. <coughs> and just, um, excuse me, um, coming on your work, I know you do a lot of work with, with Google Earth, and I was just wondering, have you heard about the... Um, the information we got earlier this year with the guys analysing the health data from Fitbits. Have you heard about that? I have, yes. Yeah, we, we had a situation where, um, you know, a company called Strava who has, you know, those Fitbit things that certain I've never worn one, but... They track your heart rate, the, how many steps you take, yeah, yeah. Probably wouldn't be a bad thing if I did wear one, to be honest, <laughs> but, um, but, but I don't. And, and someone was analysing the data, they come across these square, this square in the northern Sahara, just south of the Algerian border, and found out it was a U.S. base. Oh, my God. And it's Amazing. all the U.S. soldiers um, um, running, running the perimeter. And, so, and, and now we've, we've also got data of the perimeters of so many bases, not just American, British, Iranian, Russian, everything. We have everything, pine gap right here. All over yeah. the world. We've got that data of soldiers wearing their Fitbits, running, oh. running their patrols. And for the first time... For the first time, you know, you know, in some cases ever, we've actually got the coordinates of where some of these secret bases are because of the surveillance. And that's what I wanted to, to get. They can't control because, because while they gather all this information, what it does is, like, the state can gather the information at, at, in, um, what's the word, in an order of magnitude that we have no ability to, to get as, as, as people, let alone as activists. But w what the problem is, is that once they gather it, they centralise it. And then once it's centralised, it's not just available to the state, but it's available to anyone who can hack into the state systems. And recent history is rife with pimply teenage boys and girls in their bedrooms hacking into state systems. Mm. So surveillance, um, while it controls us, and it does is also, I, I think, giving us information. And it can we, never be complete by no. the sound of what you're saying. Um, uh, we're in conversation with Timothy Eric-Strom and Jacob Grech, uh, currently contemplating our political trajectory towards totalitarianism, and we'll be back after this track just to um, talk about some national issues and how this is manifesting uh, in our everyday lives. In a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. Welcome back to Wednesday Breakfast special broadcast, The Path to Totalitarianism, joined by Timothy Erickstrom and Jacob Grech. And, uh, yeah, we're contemplating our, our trajectory towards kind of ever-increasing states of totalitarianism. Um, uh, so just recently, Foreign Correspondent did a special report called Leave No Dark Corner, and it was about this uh, China's social credit system uh, that is, uh, you know, going to be rolled out by 2020. I think that they're starting to uh, yeah, really come down on that. I just... Um, Tim, you've been contemplating this for a while. I, um, in Arena Magazine, you published Leviathan, um, the ele in electric sheep's clothing. Um, I, yeah, can you just summarise what's happening in China? Uh, back in 2007, the Chinese State Council, which is their highest uh, state organ, uh, proposed a social credit system, uh, which 
was the first, that was the first mention of it in 2007, but then uh, there was a policy document in 2014 which really illustrated what it was about. And essentially it was an attempt by the Chinese state to have a uh, centralised system where every citizen, which is 1.3 billion people, would be given a specific number uh, which would measure their citizen trust. The ostensible purpose of it was to uh, get more people to be able to borrow money because at the moment in China, as with a huge amount of the world, a lot of peop- ordinary people do not have credit ratings and therefore can't get themselves into debt very easily because they don't have formalised systems of how, how reliable they are. So it goes to the oldest problem in finances, which is will the, will the person I'm lending money to be able to service their debt and repay me? And that, that's the, what, the key that finances use to ex- be able to extract wealth without actually doing anything useful. Uh, and in, in China, this system has that at its kernel to try to get more people to be able to uh, get credit, which is also to say get into debt, but it goes a lot further beyond that. That's the sensible purpose. Uh, in addition to that, it looks at a very, very wide range of, of factors in order to come to a single number, and that single number uh, has a tremendous impacts across a person's life, uh, affecting, say, their ability, their ability to rent a house or many, many different things. Like if you end up with a very high score, which you can get from, say, consuming luxury goods, that's a great way to improve your score, then you can find yourself fast-tracked through healthcare systems, being given visas, uh, to, like fast-tracked through visa systems to visit Europe, this, that or the other, uh, free gym membership, so on and so forth. If you have a very low score, then you can be banned from flights, as about 10 million people in China currently are, banned from trains, uh, subject to increased police harassment, uh, not letting, not getting to rent a place. Uh, one of China's biggest dating services is also linked up to this, and, you, and they, they structure it so that you'll be less likely to actually get a date online if you have a low score. <laughs> well, look, we, 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 we laugh, but we have the same number in the Western world, and it's called taxable income or bank balance. <laughs> let's, be, let's be real about it, you know. I mean, you, it's, it's, China has, China has, um, uh, what's the word, taken the most exploitative forms of capitalism confined. When, when you, you know, we, we hear about the sweatshop factories in China and factories they're building now in West Africa and, and, and places, um, they've taken the most extreme forms, or they've taken not the most extreme forms, they've taken different aspects of capitalists that they supposedly hate and taken it to its nth degree and in some ways are holding a mirror up and saying, this is what you are, you know, because yeah. that's, that's what's happening. But, mm-hmm. but and, and, and now that they've exploited all their resources, the next logical step of capitalism is to start selling people stuff that they haven't got the money to buy yet that hasn't been made yet. So that's the next logical extension of Chinese capitalism is to, is to move into the credit system. If anybody wants to get involved with the conversation, um, we have a text line. Um, so it's 0488-809-855. So that's anybody with any questions or comments. That's 048-809-855. So, Jacob, you were just saying that um, the Chinese kind of social credit system is really not that far from where we're currently at. I, yeah, I don't. <coughs> what do you see nationally 
um, so say in any kind of legislation changes or anything that's happening um, in regards to the Department of Home Affairs, this new super ministry <laughs> that is gearing us into this kind of state of, um, you know, giving well, the state more control. There, um, and I'm sure when um, Lizzie O'Shea joins us on the phone, she'll have a lot to say about the about the um, the new bills going through Parliament. But we have a number of bills going through Parliament. The Espionage Act. Or espionage and foreign interference act, and and again, like China and like the the Fitbit data and all and all the rest of it, what um, I guess I'm looking at just very recently is the way these repressive laws are working against them. You know, like for example, under the foreign interference act, anybody representing the interests of a foreign power needs to declare themselves and if you're acting in the interests of a foreign power and it can be proven supposedly whatever that means in a in a democratic society such as ours then you're subject to a whole lot of fines now how many um australian politicians and australian corporate leaders are actually working to the benefit of a foreign power at the expense of the Australian security and Australian economy. I'd argue that <coughs> a goodly 50% of the bastards are. Excuse yeah, me. And when you look at where they go once they stop being ministers, the jobs they take up after they're out of government. Exactly. Exactly. You look at, you know, Kim Beasley went on to the board of Lockheed Martin. Um, um, Peter Reith went on to Transfield. They're all, you know, it's, it's the revolving, it's the revolving door, they call it, between the, the corporate world, you know, the corporate banks, the military and the government. Um, but so you, you've got that one. Then you've got the um, assistance, the Telecommunications Assistance Act, where what they're doing is they're, they, they want to pass the law to make any provider of Internet services, telecommunications, builder of computers, builders of modem, providers of cable systems, whatever, um, need to give ASIO the ability to surreptitiously record and analyse your data and break your encryption to the point where they're saying that anybody who does this will be exempt from other laws. So they're saying up front in their legislation, we're going to ask people to do things which are currently illegal and most things which are illegal are illegal for very good reasons. Right, so you've got that one. You've got the, the Call Out the Powers Act you referred to earlier, the Defence Bill. There's always been a Call Out the Powers Act. And what, what does that mean, actually? Well, I think it's, look, I can't be quoted exactly on this, but I think it's Section 159 no, of the, of the um, Defence Defense Act, um, is that in the state of an absolute emergency, the state can request the Australian military to intervene, which is fair enough. If you have, a, if you have some kind of terrorist attack or, or calamitous earthquake or something like that, you want the army to come in and provide water and, and rebuild the roads and all that kind of stuff. Um, when you had things like the Hilton bombing, even though people say it's an inside job, and I believe it was, they, <laughs> bought, they brought in the military to take all the dignitaries down to a military base in Bowral. Um, Hawkey broke the Qantas pilot, the pilot strike in 1991, two something like that, by bringing in the RAAF. And they brought it. I was at Narunga in 1989, I think it was. Protesting. Yeah, protesting when they brought the troops there. Although that wasn't under the Act because they argued that they were already a military base. 
Um, so they didn't need to bring it out. But what this new law is doing is it's changing the parameters where the army can come out, and and meaning it's not just the governor general, it's the home affairs minister, minister of defence, prime minister, and it's saying that they don't have to be asked by the state that the Commonwealth has the right to protect its own interests. So without any state involvement, um, and they're also saying um, to, to pre, they also want to preordain, as I guess, um, pre-approve military intervention in certain cases. Now, when we look at mission creep, you know, I mean, I, look, I'm I'm not that old. I mean, you might think I am, but I remember, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I remember a time when they first brought in cap gas and tasers in Victoria. And we were campaigning against that. And they said, oh, it's going to be only the most extreme cases where people are armed and there's an alternative to shooting people. Now you go to every protest against a fashion where not tasered yet, but cap gas directly in the face. So the mission creep is with this call out the powers, with the telecommunications interception bill, with the foreign interference act, all these things in, in 10, 20 years' time, you know, which the equivalent with the cap gas is when you're my age, is going to be just an everyday occurrence. Yeah, I mean, it, it happens kind of slowly, incrementally, and uh, all of a sudden we're in it. Mm. We're in the totalitarian, totalitarian state at some level. But why are they doing it? Ah, well, there's a big question. <laughs> why? <laughs> well, my argument is that is that with the disparity, I mean, we, we have a... We, Oxfam, a whole lot of people who are not lefty, radical, anarchist rod organisations have been talking about the greater disparity in wealth where the richest 1%, you know, it used to be, used to be that 1% of the population had 50% of the world's wealth and people said that's absolutely outrageous. Now it's up to like 75% and in a couple of years' time it'll be 90%, you know. As that disparity in wealth increases, they they need to have greater control over the other 90% in order to... because people can only take so much for so long. All right? So what they're doing, they're putting in place the technologies and the infrastructure for class war. They'll never call it class war, of course. They'll call it, like they do on Blackfella um, communities, they'll call it education programs and work programs and basic cards and interventions to provide for the health and safety of their children, mm. but it's class war. I mean, uh, it's interesting you mention that because I, I think there are some groups in our society who have felt they've been living in a totalitarian state for quite a long time, and I think Indigenous peoples would certainly be Absolutely. one of those groups. And I'm thinking, Tim, you know, the technologies that enable that in Australia, within Australia, I mean, what are you seeing? Well, there's a number, number of different ways. I suppose one uh, very concrete one is the different spending cards that have been issued. Uh, I think you know, in the Northern Territory intervention, that was a, a large part of it. And then there's Cashless welfare? Sorry. Is, yeah. that, yes. is that cashless yes. welfare? Uh, cashless welfare is the latest manifestation of it. And it's a simple idea in that uh, you're, someone on Centrelink is given a card which can track every one of their purchases so that they cannot get cash from it. And this is presents a number of, number of different issues. Well, I mean, cash is, in its essence, a kind of public utility. 
it's something that you can you can get. It's got the, the sovereign's face printed on it. And you can do whatever you like with it, um, like spending it in various ways. And it's it's grimy, it's inelegant, it's not a, a great, it's not a high tech solution. But it has a number of different affordances. The uh, uh, cards that leave a digital trail the whole way. That trail can be monitored and via Centrelink, which has got to be a proto totalitarian organisation if ever there was one in Australia. Centrelink's got to be an archetype of it. Mm. Um, then they can track everything that's done, and there's again this strong moral code, which is a different one from what Ford pushed a hundred years ago. But there's there's definitely a strong moral code that runs through how Centrelink wants to shape the the spending patterns and behavioural patterns of people, and just the the data trails that are left by that card uh, are accumulated in single databases where they're groomed over by pattern recognition algorithms that tease out different things that they should worry about or be concerned about, and uh, that's again what I was saying about surveillance before was that allows them to scrape a very thin layer off of reality like they're only interested in what someone spent where like oh this money was spent in this shop at this time at this place they can get that they don't know why the person's buying it or what's going on or more about their life experience than that necessarily but from that tiny bit of information if that's centralized and put into a big uh, databases with pattern recognition technology on it, then they can get insights into it that then can be used to control and they can wave a finger. I mean, I think that's one of the most scary things I've heard about. And of course, it was initially rolled out in in indigenous communities here in Australia. And uh, part of it was, well, we want to prevent people from, you know, buying alcohol, which is a kind of, you know, throwback to a bit of Fordism there, uh, you know, (laughs) was part of it. And um, and while there, you know, there may be some genuine issues in some families, the broader uh, implications are incredibly terrifying, and now they want to roll it out across the whole country for anyone who is on the Centrelink benefits. And uh, it's also like you go in, I mean, think with other kind of things, because you can only use it in certain shops, Mm. which are also linked into the capitalist system. Absolutely, and you can't buy alcohol or tobacco. And, you know, whether you could buy condoms or contraceptives or... or yeah, very important, yeah. you know, to in, in for, for um, you know, family planning and, uh, and protection from SDIs. Oh, mm-hmm. and for just living a normal, healthy yes, life. Yes, indeed, you know? I mean, indeed, we don't need to yeah. justify our sex lives to the government. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know? Yeah, how many packets of condoms did you buy? Oh, sorry. <laughs> No, but I mean, it is that that detail of of intimate life. Yeah. And this, like many other kinds of surveillance technologies, is always leveraged on often the most vulnerable people on the periphery of a society. And then after a while, the chickens come home to roost and it ends up being spread to everyone. And you can see this happening again and again throughout history from like the... I was saying to Jacob before we uh, came in that the very first fingerprinting uh, was done in colonial India in the late 19th century, and then that suddenly went everywhere. There's been case after case after case where things have come from the colonial periphery, where they've been experimented, where different experiments, and that's the right term for it, have been conducted and have been found to be conductive uh, to the centralization and concentration of power, and then they've spread, and suddenly everyone's fingerprinted. And then a lot of these other me- things, they have this kind of uh, inside-outside dialogue, I suppose you could say it, where the most peripheral uh, communities end up being the testing grounds for what ends up being rolled out across everyone, although, of course, with very uneven consequences. Absolutely. But the interesting thing about the cashless basics card 
is that, and I always laugh at my, my friends about it, like um, when they brought in the intervention, for example, I was part of um, the anti-intervention um, mob and campaigned against that. And people are talking, people are against a castless basics car and we all go to the pub for a beer afterwards and they're all paying for their drinks with their F-Boss card. See, that need, it, it's like I said earlier about Orwell not being able to imagine that people are doing this to themselves. But, but you know, just, just as, a, as a quick survey, um, do, you use, do you use your FPOS card to pay for everyday items? You know, no, I, you don't. I don't. Well, <laughs> I, I, I didn't used to. And yesterday I was at the shops and I wanted to buy something, just a dollar. Yeah. And he said, do you want to use your card for oh. that? And I couldn't yeah. believe it. And the yeah. kind of data, can, can I just, because I'm aware of the time too, the, the kind of data they're collecting, this is the, the, interesting, the interesting thing here. You know, I was, talking to, I was talking to a bloke who was a former spook with one of the state um, special branches. And he said to me, we don't need to follow you anymore. We used to follow people like you. We know what films you watched, what cigarette brand of cigarettes you smoked, what kind of food you like to eat, the rest of it. He said, we don't need to do that anymore. He said, all we need to do is if we're interested in you, we pull up your credit card details, we pull up your library card, we pull up your video library, your, your Netflix account, your email. He said, we know we could have had 20 years ago 20 people following you around 24-7, standing outside your window while you slept and listened to you talk in your sleep, and we still wouldn't know a tenth of what we know now. All right? right. And yes. that data, I mean, you know, since Snowden, since um, Assange and Snowden, and, um, and, and, and others. Chelsea Manning. And Chelsea, but um, um, Snowden's revelation on things like PRISM, which used Verizon and Google, collected all the information and was just given them, giving all our information to the NSA. And then XKeyScore, which, like, which is like a Google for spooks, which collates all that information and indexes and puts it all together. You've, you've got, you know, the, the British, the, the British one, um, running out of GCHQ, Tempora, I think it's called, where they've got 200 fiber optic cables come across the Atlantic and they're collecting every piece of data out of it. Every last solitary piece of data. You've got them collecting all our texts, all our telecommunications. Alright, so this amount of data, there is nothing you do anymore electronically that is private and that's the kind of information we're looking at everything collect it all analyze it all use it all is the official policy mm. and and you pointed out earlier that we are complicit in yeah. our own surveillance yeah. you know by uh, by using these cards it kind of makes me think also a bit of uh, Foucault's idea of the panopticon. Yeah. You know, the fact that um, you don't even need anyone watching anymore. You know, we begin to monitor ourselves because we're aware that people might be watching. And that goes back. I was talking to some friends of mine um, um, about my age and older who were all raised in Catholic schools and altar boys and all the rest of it. And there was one of them, one of us was um, brought up proddy. And um, we were having a laugh about how us Catholics are sort of accept the surveillance more because we're used to the idea of someone watching us the whole time. Since I was a little kid, I thought, you know, I thought someone was looking over my shoulder, seeing what I was doing every 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 time I scratched my scrotum, you know. Um, but but so that idea of constant surveillance goes back a long way. Yes, yeah. indeed. 
Um, so if we are gearing up for class warfare, not that it doesn't exist already, but like, you know, just the climate's going to be reaching some kind of cataclysm, um, and we are ha- like allowing ourselves to be policed so um, strongly um, through this surveillance state, what does this mean for political dissidents? Uh, it becomes a lot more challenging. Uh, yeah, um, well, of course, as I was saying just before, a lot of the peripheries of society are the ones where a lot of these uh, surveillance technologies have been focused. Dissidents, of course, have always been one of those. Uh, and that goes back uh, a long time. Uh, just even, in, say, in around Henry Ford's time, in the US with the, a lot of the red acts that came in around the uh, uh, 1918, 100 years ago now, uh, which were yeah, to crack down on different kinds of left-wing dissidents. There's, there's long precedents for that. Uh, I guess today there's been a number of different kind of swings and roundabouts in it. Immediately after the Snowden leaks, there was a big sort of encryption movement where a lot of people tried to have encrypted everything, thinking that would be that would be the solution. But a, a lot of the problems with that movement... Uh, which a lot of it was pushed by Snowden himself and his total embrace of Tor, Ooh. the Onion Router. Well, that was its former acronym, but it was basically an encrypted browser that allows people who, if they follow a very clear-cut set of rules, to be able to surf the web with a degree of anonymity that's not possible through normal browsing. But one of the problems with that and pushing different kinds of encrypted mechanisms like that uh, is that it provides a technological fix for what is actually a deep social problem. And it ends up just sort of pasting over a lot of uh, massive in- in- inequities in systems. And also it's fundamentally doesn't work against a lot of the big corporate providers. Like you, if you use Tor and then sign into your Facebook account, then you deserve everything you get. And there's a lot of ways like that where it's actually doesn't affect the big, uh, the big corporate providers. And to the, to the, point that you can, Facebook made uh, Facebook Tor compatible, Google were completely on board with it, Uh, and we know that the NSA and the other big spy organisations have backdoor access to those corporate walled gardens, and so it's a bit bit strange. There was a recent book at the beginning of this year uh, called Surveillance Valley by a Russian-American journalist named Yasha Levin, uh, which... Uh, it was an excellent book, and it had uh, a couple of chapters in it specifically looking at the arm, arms race after Snowden uh, in terms of technolo- uh, encryption technologies. And he caused quite a bit of controversy several, several years before by claiming uh, correctly that Tor was built by the U.S. government, specifically by the military, and the, the Navy was the ones who funded it initially, and then it has been an ongoing project of the CIA. When that came out, he was slammed by a lot of uh, particularly American right-wing libertarians who just didn't want to hear it and thought that it was the great techno fix to fix all fixes. <laughs> uh, but he then uh, spent a number of years, got put in a large freedom of information request and details in ruthless uh, ruthless account of how, yes, it is directly funded by the CIA. In fact, for many, many years, it was the sole provider of it. Mm. And so this is, from a dissident perspective, is a, is a problematic thing. If a lot of the techno tools that have that supposedly can let you, let you outside of the surveillance state are actually literally owned by the surveillance state, 
it um it is a bit of a grim thing on it's that level. It's pretty ironic, really. Well, it's a bit dangerous too. Like, like it, to to some extent they work. Like things like Signal and encryption and PGP are the reasons that Snowden is alive and well and in Russia and not living in Guantanamo Bay. All right, because because he. It, it didn't stop it, but it delayed it for enough hours that the right people could get to him in Hong Kong and move him. Get him out, All yeah. Right? Mm. And, and, um, but the, the difficulty with it is, you know, you have things like Signal and WhatsApp and all the rest of it and PGP, and, and they are good, and people say that, that they're encrypted, but they're only encrypted once it leaves your telephone. So, for example, you and I, if we could comment by correspond by signal and they can't decrypt that but what if they've put a bug on my phone and they get it either before or after the encryption right all right and i know there is one on my phone i mean i know that for it i know that all right Mm. so the problem with some of these things or with pgp on your terminal on your computer so Mm. the problem is that by thinking that you're encrypted and you're safe you're likely to say things that you wouldn't say if you didn't think you were safe. Yes. So it's a fo- sense of false security, it's, it's, it's a as false, you say. It's, it's, yeah. And, and so, but as activists, that's what we need to be aware of. But there still are things we can do. Tor, Tor is run... <clears throat> um, look, um, Tor was developed by the military. You know, so were guns, but I can still use one to shoot someone, and it still works. All right? So if you use Tor effectively, and you use a... Um, anonymizer as well through your router and your telephone and and you do go through the basic of the, the way I put it in the past was you don't need to understand all the all the technology behind it like you don't need to be able to understand how an internal combustion engine works in order to drive but you should know how to change your tire or fill your radiator up with water. The very, the very basics. Use Tor, use an um, anonymizer, a, a virtual private network. Don't say anything. And then there are things that's, that's, your, that's your hiding. But there's also hiding in plain view, you know. On my phone, which I know is compromised, I don't use Tor or anything on that. I access Facebook and the rest of it. Do things, like every time you pass a shop, it'll say, do you want to check in? Check in to places you'll never go. Mm. Do searches on things you're just totally not interested in. Um, go to, you know, yeah, so, so give them a whole lot of false information mm. that then mm. makes it harder for them mm. to analyse. Mm-hmm. Drown them in information that's not necessarily relevant to you. Exactly. I'm just going to um, just read out that phone number again if anybody wants to join the conversation. So that's 0488 809 855. And we're here in conversation with Timothy Eric Strom and Jacob Grek exploring the pathways that are gearing us towards a path of totalitarianism and I'm just going to go to a track now this is Watching Me by Jill Scott Welcome back to Wednesday Breakfast with our special panel The to- Path to Totalitarianism Joining the studio with Jacob Grek and Timothy Eric Strom And we've just been discussing how we see our political climate Shaping us towards um, greater states of totalitarianism now, I'm, I'm curious, how is this manifesting in our everyday lives? I guess... Um, in like directly um, 
say something like the my health kind of data um controversy how 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 is this related to this kind of totalitarianism oh well if i can just when you mention my health if i can just cut and jump straight in there and say for all of you who haven't yet go to www.myhealthrecord.gov.au and right down at the bottom of the page we'll see after for healthcare professionals and how wonderful it all is there'll be a little blue link that says how to opt out click on that link and opt out all right, um, so and you don't have thing. a lot of time to do that. I think you've no. got to do it fairly soon. Fairly soon, I don't. Yeah, f- um, early October. October, yeah. I think they might have pushed it out a couple of weeks, but yeah, do it now. Do it now. You're sitting at home. You're in front of your computers. You've got Chrome. You've got Google on your phone. Just do it. Just do it. Wise words. Anybody that wants to join the uh, conversation, uh, we've got an SMS text line. That's 0488 809 And we're about to be joined by Lizzie O'Shea on the phone from Perth. Yeah. Um, so um, just in, in one moment. So we were in discussion just before about the cashless welfare card and how that's kind of like a manifestation of this path to totalitarianism. And we had a listener call in and they just wanted to make a comment that the cashless welfare card just bolsters the major supermarket monopolies. uh, Yes, because that's who you have to use. Yeah. And look, I think we're just about to be joined on the phone by Lizzie O'Shea. And uh, Lizzie's a, a lawyer, a writer and broadcaster. And uh, she's worked in the areas of uh, human rights law, Aboriginal rights in Australia. She's represented refugees, activists, and people targeted by national security legislation. She's a regular on national television radio programs and uh, often comments on law and digital technology and corporate responsibility and human rights. And uh, author of a, a book that's going to come out, few, this, I think soon, maybe she'll tell us exactly when, Future Histories, what Ada Lovelace, Tom Paine and the Paris Commune can teach us about digital technology. So look out for that in May next year. But Lizzie, are you there? Yeah, I am. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to have you and thanks for getting up early in Perth. No problem. Yes. Welcome, Lizzie. Um, yeah, so happy to have you here. Thank you. Um, so we, 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 we've kind of like, um, dr- created a picture of our kind of national, um, global trajectory towards totalitarianism and we kind of touched very quickly on um, this state of like um, class warfare that we're kind of gearing to and I'm, I'm curious um, to get your your perspective on it. In, in speculation, what does this mean for the future? Like all of these national laws that are being passed through through the Home Affairs Office and kind of like this um, uh, like tightening of this web of control, what will this mean it, when crisis does mount? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think it's a really big question that we're all struggling to answer at this point and um, I think reading widely on these kinds of topics is really important uh, to making up your mind uh, and working out how you can contribute to dictating what that future might look like. Um, but I think there's a couple of things. Like, uh, Obviously, I think that um, particularly around things like automation but also personal surveillance, what we're seeing is an increasing level of control, so a polarisation of power towards 
um, what you know, what academics now call surveillance capitalism. So, uh, technology companies and companies that operate around advertising that make use of our personal data, uh, and then obviously also the state is able to um, make use of that uh, information as well. And then we also see the process of automation, whereby some tasks are um, uh, prioritised for uh, computerised technology, and that usually affects people who are the poorer sections of society first. So mainly people who are uneducated, um, people who don't have other job options. So I think what we can expect is if um, technology continues to develop in the way that it does under the um, control of companies and the state, that we will see increasing inequality and also um, increasing powers for police states. So uh, the, the poorer sections of society and, and minority groups who are traditionally policed and surveilled, um, will, that will be increased. But what I would also say about that, though, is that, of course, the future isn't determined. So a lot of this technology has um, immense potential for all sorts of good uses as well. And that um, what I would say then in, in that respect is one way to think about where we are and where we're going is that uh, we're not making use of the immense potential of digital technology to create conditions of um, equality, of freedom, of self-actualisation in a meaningful way, of less work, um, of greater scrutiny of how our environment is changing so that we might be able to change that and do something about the catastrophic potential of climate change. So what I would say is that I feel the great immense potential of digital technology is being held back by uh, the way in which it's developing in, in the current political paradigms so that that needs to shift. Tim, you spend a lot of time in this kind of um, world. Uh, do you, what, what are the positives that you see in developments within this kind of um, your field? So there's all sorts of things like medical, obviously medical research is an obvious one. So, you know, there's all sorts of ways in which devices now using a large cohort of medical information that's been digitised can predict um, the way in which you might have a particular health problem before you can know it and uh, advance the um, ways in which we might be able to diagnose and treat conditions. And that's an enormous potential. But I think like here's an example, I think, in Australia. We've seen legislation, you know, around My Health Record, for example, which is designed to help with that, and that's ostensibly the purpose, according to the government. But, of course, what's actually happened is that the database system has been rolled out in a heavy-handed manner that do not, does not give people any um, sovereignty over their own data or consent to um, sharing in situations where they might not have imagined that that was going to arrive. Um, it's actually a database that's much more prioritised around the interests of um, watching people, but also uh, sharing that information in future with potentially with um, with private organisations, even though this is not the stated aim of the legislation. We've already seen people from insurance companies talking about accessing it. So you can see there like how how critical it is that we have a way of sharing health information that is safe, that allows people to get access to better health care. And yet, because the government is implementing this program, they do it in a manner that doesn't um, prioritise consent that doesn't actually focus on improving treatment outcomes, that isn't done in consultation with experts in either cryptography or also medicine. So doctors who are using it don't feel like, many of them, when I've spoken to them, don't feel like it's um, designed for the purpose that it's, that it's stated to be designed for. And so you see how it's, it's very frustrating. People who want to participate in sharing of health information in order to improve everyone's chances of uh, being treated and, and diagnosed um, and, you know, better health outcomes are limited by the fact that the government is the ones responsible for managing and, and coordinating this data, and it's a huge limitation. 
Yeah, well, one of the wonderful things um, about this technology, Lizzie, is having you on the line over in Perth, mate, while we're stuck here in Drury Cole, Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, lucky, lucky me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, I think that's an important point, that there are po- so many positives to this technology, and, and the positives just, you know, as you say, with diagnosing illness, but also um, the way that we all now have part of what they're doing by creating this um, information web so that they can tap into it is also providing the information out there so that your average punter in the street can get online through whatever method and find out what they're actually doing. So, so the interesting thing is there, um, where we're different these days to where we were in the past, I, I guess is in the past that earlier on Tim was talking about under Fordism and different um, Mussolini totalitarianism, that um, they were surveilling a largely ignorant population and um, now I think the ignorance is only of our own making or at least choice. Yeah, I mean, I would add one other thing into the mix, which is that um, I don't think that there's... One of the great things about the internet is that you could potentially access the entirety of human knowledge with just a few clicks. So that's one of the most exciting possibilities, I think, of interconnectivity and digitalised um, records and databases. And, you know, the the biggest limitation on that, there's many limitations, I should say, but one of the key limitations actually is um, issues around copyright, so owning um, data and who gets to, not just data, but also like research, creative material, um, you know, uh, all sorts of all sorts of human knowledge that's been privatised um, and kept under lock and key by companies who want to make money off it. Um, and so, you know, then you see how this might work in practice. And I was reading some research the other day about talking about how censorship is a key issue but um, and surveillance is a key issue in lots of both liberal democracies but also more authoritarian regimes, but that actually most liberal democracies don't um, censor material on the basis of political justifications in the way that you might expect in authoritarian regimes, but how they often do it is under the cover of protecting our intellectual property rights, for example, obviously things like criminality, like terrorism and child pornography. But I think it's really interesting that intellectual property plays such a key role in censoring um, one of the greatest developments of the last 100 years, uh, in the internet and the digital technology that fuels it. So we can see that in Australia. There's a content blocking regime in place um, where you can, where copyright um, holders can apply to the federal court and have websites preemptively blocked if they uh, can show that there's, gonna, there's a risk of copyright material appearing on that um, website without it being authorised. That's a stunning power, um, you know, and it, it tracks to some degree, but not in the way that it ought to be, and, and this is considered legitimate um, because people have the right to pr- um, proprietary information and to protect that proprietary information. And you, you can see how this kind of can create a future in which uh, more and more of human potential is locked down uh, by the structures under which we operate, which includes protecting information and research and knowledge if it's been uh, generated and, and under lock and key by the private sector. And so you can see the intersection there between how capitalism operates and, and the market incentive operates and also then how the state serves its purposes in terms of monitoring how we access digital information. It's almost like um, it, it's, it's the continuation of the fight for the human spirit against these forces, and I feel like it's just moving into the Internet field because that's our latest new enclosure like the the newest cage in its form and like to fight for internet freedom is to fight for the human freedom 
so, like, w- where where do you see this fight going, Tim? Um, well, I guess on, there's a lot at stake. I think a, a, with a bit of the emphasis on the internet, it's an interesting thing because the internet is by its nature a disembodied medium. It It is something that you go onto with your little screen and you sort of tune out of the rest of the world where of wherever it is you happen to be. I mean, if you take a tram in Melbourne and look around at the, the people around you, like it, it's a bizarre thing. And so it actually, you talked before about the fight for the human condition, and I think you can make a very good argument that a lot of these technologies are actually transforming the human condition in a very deep and real way in that, I mean, some of the recent statistics on smartphone usage are very telling. Like The average person in countries like Australia spends four hours per day on their smartphone, which is the equivalent of a quarter of waking life. It's the, it is, Smartphones are unlocked on average every 12 minutes of the waking day. There's nothing, nothing that's... It's unbelievable. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. Smartphones and dumb people. There's been a number of... One, one study in the US even found that uh, 20% of people aged between 20 and 30 admitted to checking their smartphone during sex, which is kind of <laughs> remarkable. That's terrible. <laughs> but uh, in bringing this up, I just... Mentioned. Even when someone else is there. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Uh, in bringing this up, I wanted to make the point that um, a lot of these technologies, they're fundamentally not neutral. They all have uh, different kinds of politics embedded within them. And although the politics can be can be contradictory, and as we've said, there's a number of ways that they can be used by dissident, dissident forces and whatnot, they're still material objects produced in very particular fashions. And at the moment, the ways in which a lot of the technologies are produced, both the intellectual technologies that function on computing machines and the actual hardware of the machines themselves, from where they've been dug out on the earth to where they've been assembled along the whole process, there's, at the moment, it's fair to say, an exorbitant amount of human suffering embedded in a lot of these machines, which is, even though they can be used in contradictory kind of ways, there's there's something systemic about it that's changing the human condition in ways that you would, would have to be quite a stretch to say that it's good. And that doesn't mean that it's determined in the strong sense, but it does mean that the particular kinds of machines that we use have particular ways that they can be used. And I think it's worth considering the disembodiment that uh, computers allow, because basically they're a screen with information and data on it, and that you interact with that in a very particular way. It's different from, say, a bunch of workers from one of Henry Ford's old factories who go out for smoko, and they they stand around with one another outside and... In a scheme or yeah. argue or whatever it is that Plan they the revolution. <laughs> yes. It's a, it's a different beast when you're sitting yeah. at home tap, tapping away on a machine. And it's changing our physiology. I noticed just recently um, I've, I've got friends who have got kids and, gr- kids and grandkids and um, I noticed um, one kid a few months ago pointing at something with his thumb. This is a two-year-old. We normally point with our fingers. But this guy's two, maybe three, and he's already used to using a tablet and, a, and, and his mum's smartphone, and he's pointing with his thumb because that's become his primary digit. Oh, interesting. And it's, and it's, mm-hmm. and it's the way it's affecting our eyes with the blue light. And, and it is it like, like all technologies, all um, immersive technologies have an effect on our physiologies. Yes. So can, I just, can I jump in here because I think there is some interesting research in this space that's worth looking to if you are interested in this topic, which is around um, 
actually around electronic gambling machines, um, what we would know in Australia as poker machines. Uh, there's a great book called Addiction by Design, which is by a woman who um, researched this topic extensively. She's a social anthropologist out in Las Vegas. But Australia is actually the petri dish for the design of electronic gambling machines because we have more... Uh, New South Wales is the second largest jurisdiction for gambling machines after Nevada. But what I would say about that is she documents quite carefully how um, addiction is a function of a dynamic between the human and, and the device. And she's gone on now to be part of an uh, institute that's criticising how this uh, takes form in, um, in smart technology that we use in more everyday settings. So I think there's some interesting stuff there. I mean, I, I do think addiction is a problem in that respect and that actually it's... it's I don't think people are... Um, I dumb. I think they're they're being cultivated to be addicted to it or to have an addic- a dynamic of addiction with their device, and so huge amounts of money and research are put into these billions of dollars to try and keep people on their device. So it, to suggest that they're somehow responsible is also kind of to miss the forest for the trees there, I think. But I, I take, take, that doesn't mean that it's not a problem, but I sort of think it does uh, kind of frame how we ought to think about it as, as, uh, as a designed system that is um, trying to cultivate a certain kind of behaviour in people. But what I would also say is I think you, it's important to remember the transformative potential of these devices too. So with that that kind of dynamic of addiction, we also can see huge potential. And I don't think it's necessarily a problem if people spend a huge amount of time on their devices if um, they're doing it in a way that they feel is within their control and and that they're exercising their autonomy. And I think we can sort of treat these things a bit like, oh, well, the newspaper was going to ruin people's lives. And that's what people thought when the newspaper arrived. Just like that's what they thought about television as well. So each time we get new technology, we also need to consider, like, whether we're reacting to the change that we're experiencing from what our previous life was or whether we're actually interpreting it politically as uh, a, a side of change, a side of oppression and how those two interact and how we might be able to wrestle back power using that technology, um, you know, and, and think about it in, in those political terms so that we make sure that I think that we have a, a strategy for change that, that turns around some of these worst aspects of it and, and makes use of it for the best. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree, Lucy. And uh, but also important. I'm sorry, Judith here. Um, I think it's important we learn how to fight back. Yeah, and I think I think, Lizzie. Yeah, you're right. It's not that it's, you can't blame the people. It's um, it is a it is a design towards addiction, but it is, I believe, also designed to dumb us down in that it stops us thinking. Exactly right. I feel like they're culturally engineering us to be placated, uh, to be pacified in the face of this class warfare. Like we we are they're they're just like um are external mechanisms have become internal distractions and they're kind of like um, controlling our minds without like us even like being able to analyse it as such because it's become such a cultural normative to be able to use these technologies. And, and as, as, as Lizzie said, it's, it's been the same with previous technologies. Like, you know, there are so many pictures of people on Melbourne trams in the 50s Every, everybody there in their suit with the copy of the age or the, or the Herald in front of them, just like we're on our smartphones now. And, you know, the Herald Sun was doing what the internet's doing many, well, it wasn't Herald Sun then, but the papers, um, doing what the internet's doing for a long time. But I think it is. And, and I think part of the addiction is not just for, um, hard consumerist capitalist purposes to get us to buy stuff, but it's also to, to stop us, to, to dumb us down, just like in, in, the same, in the same way the Herald Sun is. 
I mean, Hannah Arendt um, thought that thoughtlessness and political indifference was the one driving factor towards totalitarianism. Is is this what you see happening through these technolo- um, technological kind of developments? Anybody? Lizzie? Uh, yeah, well, so I do think, you know, the, the way that surveillance is commonly thought of is through the prison of Orwell, uh, you know, that that's the kind of future that we're expecting where we're constantly scrutinised. And I don't think that that's an entirely useless frame, of course, because I think there's plenty of research which documents how surveillance and censorship does limit people's uh, capacity to organise, to think uh, critically, to share ideas, to explore the edges of their personality without the fear of being judged or it being used against them. But I, I do think there is something to be said for... Um, making use of Huxley, so the idea that we're in a kind of, uh, um, you know, the, the, not, not unlike this analogy with gambling, we're in this kind of, um, this experience of enjoyment that's not um, invasive but keeps us on a, on a paradigm of, of paralysis, you know, so we're, we're not able to change things because we're satiated enough without uh, therefore scrutinising our conditions. So it's just a, it's a level of... Um, enjoyment or satisfaction which is very low level so just enough without necessarily um you know uh, giving rise to the possibility of alternate realities and i think that's that's a legitimate way to think about it that um you know like kind of like wally you know that film with the robot and that everyone's mm. scooting around in those um seats because they're getting fed heaps and entertained end- endlessly so i think we can lose ourselves in that but there's also moments in which the re- reality breaks through and we can see that in pop culture all the time and i, I don't think it's it's um necessarily worse or better uh but i do think it's worth thinking about that and, and trying to engage in, in that forum as well and not just dismissing as well like pop culture or um or enjoyment of frivolity on the internet as being totally a side of complete uh, political vacation because I don't think that's true either. I think we can engage with it and, you know, people want to enjoy themselves and that's a legitimate thing. So how can we turn that into a demand that, you know, you have you should work less so that you can do these things and be a more fulsome personality and have a chance to do politics as well as joy and um, and work and not be exhausted at the end of the day so the only thing you can think about is watching some tune-out TV. You know, I think that we can have discussions that talk about it using that frame without just uh, assuming that uh, it's completely apolitical in its nature because I don't think that's true. I think I've heard all three of you say that the future is not determined. So what are the possibilities within this indeterminate future and what can we do to help not only envision but also start manifesting this kind of new world outside the grasp of totalitarianism? Let's start with you, Jacob. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, got me, on, got me on the spot there, Layla. Um, look, I think um, the, the, to, to give a cliche, we need to um, act as if it's already here. All right, you need to, to, it's no, you know, obviously we fight for a better world and we do what we can to bring one about. All of us in this room and most of the people listening on, on 3CR have been involved in the struggle for freedom um, at some, at, in various degrees for different periods of time. Um, and we need to keep doing that. But I think it's also important that we, that we do it in our own lives. Because while we're talking about, you know, I mean, it's not, 
And, and this is something which has come into our whole psychology. It's not just, you know, the big evil capitalists who run Google and Netflix and, um, I was going to say Netspace, given away my age, but, um, uh, what's, what, you know, the Facebook, that's what it's called. Um, and, and all these who are, who are telling us what to think, but we do that in our own, in our own lives. I mean, you know, the left community, such as it is in Melbourne, have our own little, you know, very strong thought police. 100%. You know, and, and, you know, if, if, and, and we're all not just being surveilled by the corporations, but we're surveilled by our own thought police who are, who are for, you know, you can't say, you know, you, there are only certain positions you can take on, you know, things like Syria and w- without, you know, being accused of being one thing or a bloody another, not by the right, but by our own people. And I think it's in dan- that there's, there's a danger that, we're mirroring the totalitarian state um, because we we adapt to our environment and as the environment becomes more all-encompassing and more totalitarian, we do as well. So I think, I think there is that. And I think it's also important to note that, you know, with recent tech, we're talking about technologies here, but let's talk about physics. If quantum physics has taught us anything, and that's that there is no such thing as an uninvolved observer or an uninvolved observed, all right, the very act of watching us and the very act of us knowing we're being watched changes the whole dynamic. So it's not some benign surveillance we're talking about. It's affecting the way we act and it's affecting our personalities and it's affecting our culture and it's affecting our society on a very basic level. And I think we need to be aware in our personal relationships, in our broader interactions with society at large, and try to... Either embrace it, if that's what you want to do, or mitigate it, if that's what you want to do. But whichever it's going to be, do it mindfully. Yeah, and resist, sounds like. To go back to a point that I made at the very beginning about the word surveillance being literally meaning the view from outside and above, uh, I think that's something that manifests through so much of our culture, which is deeply hierarchical in a lot of a lot of ways. Like the the view from outside and above. Like if you look at how the vast majority of businesses are organised. They're organised by shareholders uh, who control who goes on the board and thus ultimately make all of the decisions. Shareholders are in one way the ultimate form of surveyor because they sit outside and above an organisation. They don't do the productive work, but they extract money from it and exert power over it. And that model, which is at the very base of how capitalism works, that that is capitalism, or at least one definition of it, pervades so much of our culture that I think one good way that surveillance can be resisted is through creating organisations that do not, that are just not fundamentally based on surveillance as all capitalist organisations are. If there are no external shareholders, then then that's one huge facet of life, which is the working world, which has been left out of a lot of earlier 20th century struggles, which were all about, you know, state control and... Uh, planned economies and whatnot, whereas the smaller scale of work, workplaces were left out of it. And I think that's an interesting one for uh, to consider on an everyday life and things that can actually practically be done differently because all of us invest our energies in different kinds of work enterprises in one shape or form. And I think the old model of worker democracy is actually has a lot to say for it and that if people were to go into that, it, uh, then not only do they have to make their own kinds of decisions about how... Uh, what their workplace should do, what what that ha- what happens with it, but there would be no, it's not constituted by surveillance. There's no outside observer who makes all of the decisions, and that same 
I think uh, through having a little little models like that, then that could be a good way to try to change and transform some of the broader patterns in society based on like everyday practice and what's going on. Thank you. Um, so, so can I jump in and suggest that um, I think there's a couple of ways in which we could think about the future or transforming what it could be or reclaiming the future as well. Um, and one thing I would say is that um, in terms of talking about technology, we can't assume that technology is itself to fix a lot of our social problems. And that is increasingly a view that's put forward by lots of um, people. So you can see plenty of people putting faith in um, the tech bros who run large corporations like Elon Musk or uh, Mark Zuckerberg as being the future of politics and um, a new future that's, uh, you know, enlightened and um, tech savvy. And I think that's a real mistake and uh, we need to resist that. So that idea of technological utopianism, that we can apply technology to our current world and it will improve our social problems is a mistake. And there's lots of great writing on that, talking about how, you know, technology is neither good nor bad, but nor is it neutral. There's plenty of, um, you know, writers in the history of technology that can tell you a bit about that kind of thinking and why it's a problem. But what I would say as well is that, um, well, I, I think that it would be nice to not have shareholders. I also think that that's... Um, uh, a worthwhile thing to think about how that might look like in practice in, in the everyday is that we are seeing huge numbers of workers in Silicon Valley particularly but also in places like Brazil and India who are organising in the tech industry itself and we should be supporting them doing that. So there's plenty of companies in Silicon Valley who've experienced this recently. Um, you know, Google, Microsoft, uh, Salesforce have all been confronted by situations where their workers are opposing collaboration with military projects, collaboration with immigration and customs enforcement. You could see how this could spread to other industries who then uh, are also critical of companies that do this and request and demand that um, that technology companies change how they behave so that they aren't bolstering their military technology or um, technologies of oppression and that that might spread through worker organising. And I think that that's something that really we, we dismiss far too often. Um, a lot of people like to think that technology workers are all libertarians and right-wingers who aren't interested in politics at all, and they've proven that that's not, not the case at quite Quite, quite the opposite. So they are engaged and interested, and we should be supporting them doing that. Absolutely, um, so that's the other Lizzie. Space, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, like worker cooperation, absolutely, and unionization. And I'm going to go a step further and I'm going to say uh, we need to start dropping out of societal roles, start demanding radical change from our universities, start actually um, and turning Luddite on the machines, perhaps to a certain extent. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Jacob Gregg, Timothy Erickstrom and Lizzie O'Shea for joining us here on discussing our path to totalitarianism. This may perhaps be the one of many conversations because I feel like we have so much to unpack and evolve within this topic, but thank you. And I just want to leave everybody uh, reminding you at home that the future is not yet determined. It is emergent, and within that emergence, anything is possible. Anything is possible. But just start like contemplating your role within this totalitarianism state and start trying to uh, analyse where you can change your lifestyle behaviours, your perspectives, your um, the way that your worldview because um, it's as dependent on you as it is dependent on me as it is it's dependent on us. So thank you, thank you, and enjoy your week. Thank you. We'll put links up on the conversation and podcast on the website 3cr.org.au or on Twitter at 3cr. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.